Hello, this is episode five of TM Proverbs. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the subject of how science points to God. And for this, I'm joined with my friend Josh Sinclair, um, who I've only ever actually met once before, but it feels already like we know each other quite well. Um, me and Josh used to hang out in the same circles for quite a while, but we'd never actually met each other. Um, and it was through university in the Free Speech Society where um, we just had a lot of the same friends. But then one day we met each other and we started talking about Christianity and it felt like we pretty much blinked and it was 7am. Um, and yeah, that's just how we met. But I think I thought it'd be interesting to explore this topic with Josh as he studied philosophy and physics. So I thought it'd be get, good to get someone who could kind of speak to maybe what it's like to be a Christian and to study physics and just to kind of come at physics from a Christian point of view. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Anil. Um, I think what we're just going to talk about is kind of whether there's this tension that there's often perceived to be between science and faith um, and kind of the history of science as well, whether this is tension or perceived tension has always existed and uh, whether or not the picture sold to us by people like Dawkins <laughs> is uh, the correct one or whether there's a deeper um, perspective that we can gain on this. So I think we're going to start talking about the history of science. and Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the quotes that I found really cool was uh, by C.S. Lewis, who says, Men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Mm -hmm. And... This is kind of um, supported by the kind of founders of the scientific revolution. When you see the way they talk, you constantly see them talking about God. And when they were asked about what they were doing, they said, um, we're exploring God. This is an act of prayer to God. This is um, basically explaining the universe was an act of appreciation of the universe. But also just, I guess, the idea of expecting it to be intelligible in the first place was an assumption which could be made because if it was God-given, then it makes sense that it would cohere to the same sort of rationality given that we're made in the image of God. Yes. Um, so I guess from a historical point of view, I guess, is the first kind of, is the first thing which would make us think that there shouldn't be a tension between science and Christianity because the first scientists or the kind of uh, pioneers of science were themselves Christians working from Christians' presuppositions. Um, and obviously they weren't all Christians. Some of them were like deists and these sorts of things. But for the most part, they seem to be coming from a Judeo-Christian perspective. Definitely, definitely. And I think that the role of reason within that is so pivotal mm -hmm. because if there is an order to creation, if there is a universality, you know, Newton talks, he, he became famous obviously for his universal law of gravitation. That in itself is this kind of concept that there is a consistency for everyone in the universe, right? Yeah. There are these universals and <laughs> in a world where there is no creator, there is no order giver, it's difficult to explain how such order can arise from yeah. such chaos. And that's very much, you know, the, the modern paradigm is very much, you know, we have the Big Bang Theory and it's portrayed as this chaotic event which somehow gives rise to order. Yeah. But 
it's difficult <laughs> for me personally to accept the materialistic narrative offered by those such as Dawkins when it doesn't quite explain how there is this consistency across time in the laws of physics themselves yeah. and uh, things like gravity. Yeah. How can such order arise out of such chaos without an orderer? And Newton himself, he uh, in the end of uh, his... I can't remember exactly what the text is called on uh, universal gravitation. He talks about, I've left it up to the readers to determine what this force <laughs> is yeah. that provides this consistency. So mm. there's definitely an awareness, and Newton himself is an interesting character, um, kind of deist, kind of theist, depending <laughs> yeah. on the period of his life. But yeah. Yeah. I, I guess this kind of talks to what we were talking about earlier, the kind of general trend of scientific discovery, where a lot of the materialists make out like what's happened with science is we used to explain stuff by religion, by the Bible, by Christianity. Mm. But since science has come about, the more science ex uh, explains, the less there is for the Bible to explain. Whereas we were talking about how this actually seems to be pretty much the opposite of what's being discovered in science with in terms of ordered complexity. But do you want to kind of unpack? Yeah, that? definitely. I mean, as we've discovered greater instruments that can achieve a greater degree of accuracy yeah. and new laws of physics have been discovered <laughs> and new phenomena have been observed. It's only got more complex. <laughs> the, the problems faced by uh, physicists and scientists and everyone yeah. in explaining the order in the world has only been increased by discovering atoms, discovering quantum mechanics, things like this, because yeah. there's the level of Complexity. The same is true in uh, biology with yeah. the discovery of the genome. You know, this is something that Charles Darwin had no knowledge of. Yeah. You know, his mechanism for evolution is formulated without a knowledge of the genome yeah. even I, existing. I, I think this is one thing that's kind of really, it's kind of key, cause, um, and I think it's worth kind of unpacking. I think what it is is when Charles Darwin created his theory, he was basically saying his kind of theory was we can go from simple life and we can explain how simple life became complex life so he was taking it from this original replicator which is just a cell which could divide itself and he thought that from that you could get all the way to complex life mm -hmm. which might be true but the problem is is that that original replicator now according to um this person uh this scientist uh stephen mayer he was saying this is more complicated than like a macbook air yes. now like the coding oh, yes. in the macbook air so even if evolution can take us from that original replicator up until a human being mm -hmm. the problem is is that's not simple to complex life that's no. complex to complex life yes. and the original replicator still needs explanation yes so now that kind of modern science has learned more about the complexity we need a creator more than ever to yes. explain it <laughs> yes the more you zoom in the f more complexity you'll discover <laughs> yeah. and these things which in the 18th 19th century they thought were simple they're not simple <laughs> they're really not and coming from the physics point of view as well this has really opened my eyes to this yeah. kind of phenomena is the sheer number of laws, the physical laws and mechanisms that occur at the inconceivable and imperceptible level mm. in reality to generate even an atom, to generate <laughs> even, you know, we're talking about genetics, to generate a specific molecule that can then 
be part of the genetic code, which itself is so inconceivably complex, but there's another layer even beyond that of this weird world of invisible particles that you can't <laughs> see dipping in and out of reality and all being perfectly balanced to allow even atoms to form. Yeah. There is just this sheer complexity, and I think Newton was onto something by going with gravitation and going down that route, because that is one thing that is so universal. And I'd see that as something which, more than anything, speaks to the power of God in the mm. universe, is because there is this consistency that yeah. everything can have mass and then it can <laughs> behave in an ordered fashion once it has that mass. Yeah. I heard it described as radical intelligibility, like mm. the fact that you, would, you shouldn't necessarily expect pe like beings as limited as us on this little rock in the tiny corner of the universe to be able to, to understand so far out into the universe. Like, everything we look into seems to make sense. I guess mm -hmm. there's some quantum mechanics doesn't always seem to make sense, but we can use mathematics, which mm -hmm. is surprising in itself, to make yes. sense of it. Well, that's key as well. <laughs> Why does maths work? This <laughs> yeah. is, this is, that's a huge thing in itself. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense that it should work mm. in, a, in a godless universe. Why is there a consistency? And there are those who might say, oh, it's just the system that we've created. Yeah. But I don't think that that holds up under scrutiny because there are genuine mathematical principles that are at work in nature. And again, I'm talking about the laws of physics specifically. There is concepts like differentiation, you know, mathematical uh, operations like addition, subtraction, that even your brain uses in order to be able to conceive of anything you know my ability to think about you as a separate entity to me <laughs> is dependent upon some innate awareness of the concept of two right yeah. of multiplicity yeah. right of more than just oneness <laughs> and that itself is a mathematical concept uh, to do anything to be able to think at all you have to have this kind of innate awareness of these ordered concepts yeah. of logic <laughs> yeah. and negation as well, you know, yeah. these kind of concepts. Yeah. I guess this is, yeah, among scientists it's taken as a given, but as a philosopher you quickly yeah. discover this isn't a given. Right. Um, and this leads some scientists to be kind of not very comfortable with philosophy because it does reveal these things and mm. it's almost like they're on the ship that's been built for them and they just take it for given that obviously the ship is here. But it's like, if there's a ship there, it's like, no, you need to look at the ship and who's made it, mm. and how have they made it. Yes. And when you look at the ship of science, it was made by Christians. It seems to have all of these Christian suppositions holding it together. Yes. Um, but they just take it as a given. They just take it as, oh, of course, this is how we think. Of course, this is how science is. But I guess, I guess how, I guess what, it's not clear immediately what the alternative explanation of how science came about is. Like, what's the other story of its genesis other than mm -hmm. these sorts of considerations? Well, I think that's why science has shifted now to believing in kind of these faith-based concepts like the multiverse, <laughs> right? Which I, I would regard as kind of science's reversion to 
get away from the kind of rationalist Christian underpinnings of yeah. the, of science yeah. as an operation and it's pretty itself. much science fiction. <laughs> like, yeah, right? Because yeah. it's something which is unempirical. It's by yeah. definition unverifiable by science's own rules, but they're willing to accept that yeah. over believing that there's a creator who orders everything. Yeah. <laughs> then you just kind of reach this point where it's like, was that just not the simplest explanation? Yeah. Is there other reasons that you have for not accepting that there is an orderer, yeah. you know, rather than it being a scientific kind of endeavor, philosophical, which is the most logical <laughs> solution, you know? So specifically in the fine-tuning argument, I know mm -hmm. this gets very complex, but how would you explain it in the simplest terms possible? So again, I talk about gravity for the fine-tuning argument. So gravity has a strength. And that's uh, partially what Newton proved, is that uh, there's a set um, speed you accelerate um, towards the Earth, but even individual particles will exert gravity on each other in space, right? Um, they'll attract each other masses. That is a fundamental value. It has a numerical value, which is different to, say, the amount of energy contained in a photon, right, which is a particle of light. So these fundamental mathematical values of the amount of energy contained in these, in these um, fields, like gravity and the electromagnetic field, which is what the sun emits and why we have a, a, the Earth has a magnetic field to bounce these, this electromagnetic field produced by the sun off to stop it harming us. Yeah. These fields are so perfectly balanced to allow life to form, because if gravity were stronger, everything would just be one big ball in the middle of the universe, it wouldn't be spread out. But if it was weaker, everything would have just spread out and atoms wouldn't be able to actually form yeah. in the first place. <laughs> so these fundamental, universal, physical, like, <laughs> quantities are perfectly balanced to allow life to form. And they often talk about, um, atheist scientists will often talk about the whole, oh, well, the universe is so big, life could potentially form on another planet, it's only a matter of time. And that argument kind of works from a biological perspective, but it doesn't work for the perspective of physics, because this universe is this universe. Yeah. The force of gravity is the force of gravity. <laughs> you know, it has yeah. this set consistency. And this is where I also disagree with the concept of the multiverse from a philosophical point of view is, I don't think it makes sense to talk about other universes where there are other laws of physics. Because time and space are a feature of this universe. That's what science itself even says. It says that time and space began in the Big Bang, mm -hmm. you know, the singularity, oh, yeah. the point of creation. And it's interesting because the Big Bang was actually a theory <laughs> created by a Christian, by <laughs> Lemaitre, and it was rejected by mainstream science Yeah, they were really reluctant, time. weren't they? Because, yes. because of its Judeo-Christian implications. Yes, <laughs> because it's a singularity. It's a finite point of creation where time and space exist. So talking about anything outside of time and space, talking about variation doesn't make sense. Because <laughs> ch chance can only operate in, a, in time and space. You know, to roll a dice, you have to have space to roll it and time for different outcomes to occur, right? <laughs> And that works in the universe, but it doesn't work outside the universe. So talking about <laughs> other universes doesn't make sense to me. Have Just you heard that. the pool objection? The 
pool analogy. I don't think so. No. So one of the objections to this is, or it's not necessarily to this, but this sort of thinking is, um, it's by Douglas Adams. He says, um, he talks about a pool, uh, like a little puddle of water. And it finds itself perfectly, um, perfectly situated in this hollow that it's in. Mm-hmm. And it looks around and it's like, wow, isn't it amazing that this hollow perfectly fits my body shape? But obviously, from an outside perspective, you can see, no, it's more the pool has adapted its shape to the surroundings, Mm -hmm. which is one of the objections to this. But I think uh, Roger Penrose actually had an objection to this, who himself isn't even a Christian. But he said that the problem with this is, is if we just thought, oh, um, the reason we see this order is because we happen to be the sort of life that's adapted for this. Mm-hmm. The problem is we should see a way smaller universe because we could exist in a universe that's the size of the solar system. And that's way more probable than the universe as we see it because mm-hmm. the bigger the universe gets, the more ordered complexity we have mm-hmm. to uh, account for. Yes. So it's not that we fit perfectly into this hollow. It's more we fit into a bit of it. And the rest of it is ordered and complex in yes. a way that isn't explained just by us adapting to it. Definitely. Does that make sense? Definitely, <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so. Um, I mean, I appreciate Penrose's insight <laughs> there, and he's trying to zoom out, and I, I guess that's also what I'm uh, trying to do, zoom out to the level of, I mean, that's to some extent why I study physics and philosophy. It's just trying to zoom out and find all of our presuppositions and try and imagine it from the most detached perspective mm-hmm. outside the universe to see the level of complexity that does truly exist <laughs> in reality. So how, having these sorts of views in a physics department, how was that just from a personal perspective? Yeah, um, it was quite positive. Uh, it was quite interesting. I, it's not that I talk to my lecturers particularly uh, very much about this. I was still um, forming a lot of my opinions, but my friends seem receptive to it. And of course, I, I've, uh, the majority of them would be kind of skeptics or atheists. Um, but I think if, it's interesting because at first they kind of would assume that the two are separate, right? And this goes back yeah. to what we mentioned at yeah, the start, yeah. right? It's this idea that it should be separate, that yeah. like, the religious arguments for God, the faith-based arguments of God, based on spirituality, it's yeah. not based on science, and yeah. science is about something else. They're talking about different realms. Science is talking about the world we see around us. Faith is about what you can't see, right? But yeah. once I started talking, I think they realized that I don't see it in that separate <laughs> way. I see them both as part of the same exploration of what we can know about reality. Yeah. Right, and I mean, science now, especially now compared to in Darwin's day, etc., it engages with things that you can't see all the time, <laughs> right? And this is part of the complexity as well. In Darwin's day, it's only what you can observe, things like cells under a microscope. Yeah. But now, science talks about phenomenon that we're rationalizing how they can be caused by invisible particles based on what we know their properties must be using maths but we can't see them, right? <laughs> it's reached up to a level of complexity that's even beyond our senses now. Yeah. And that to me is proof that these two should be united and that science and religion shouldn't be separate because, <laughs> well, yes, okay, faiths for thousands of years haven't had scientific tools to 
observe the uh, observe in a categorical way like science does, but they still have attested to the real existence of things that you can't normally see. And I don't regard that as any less valid just because it can't be repeated in, in <laughs> the you know, empirical conditions of a lab. I, I think that philosophically it's valid as well. Your experiences spiritually, your experiences as a person, they're just as valid as the experiences of the world. You know, one's not more real than the <laughs> other in the ultimate analysis. Yeah. I guess you just touched on something that's something I wanted to think about mm-hmm. quickly. It's, um just this idea that science can explain everything, where, as you just said, there are certain presuppositions, certain things we assume just as human beings which can't be uh, verified by science. So I guess one just would be consciousness, the fact that yeah. other people are conscious. You can't, you can't verify that scientifically. Yeah. Um, and is there any other examples you can think of? Just, yeah, just anything. You can't... <laughs> This is, I think, the point that Plato tries to make with his analogy of the cave is ultimately all we have are appearances. Ultimately, (laughs) we can't ever say for certain that we have a definitive model of the world because all we have is like a reflection of the world, you know, given to us because there's this gap because we receive data, our eyes receive data, but then our brain generates kind of controlled hallucination of that world that we then make inferences upon and we do theorizing based on these kind of rational uh, consistencies that mathematics provide to these experiences but we can never say this experience is true I can never prove that you're (laughs) conscious I can prove that I'm conscious I can't prove that you're conscious right yeah I can't prove that this world exists I can't prove I'm not in a dream right now. Yeah. Can't prove I won't wake up. Not really, yeah. right? You can't yeah, truly I guess prove anything. We always rely on trust to navigate the world. Yes. Um, so there's no reason to not trust other things too. I guess it's just trust, isn't it? So if you try to get rid of faith and trust, truly, you'll be left with pretty much nothing. Yes. <laughs> truly, yes. Yeah. And I think... It makes sense to put faith in an orderer because that's the commonality between your experiences. You can, even if you can't say that any experience itself is proven, is true, you can see that there's a consistency throughout that must mean that there's some kind of higher metaphysical orderer that's allowing you to have those experiences. There is, that, to me, there can't just be the subjective. There has to be an objective because... The idea of a subject itself requires the idea of an object. Because what are you being subject to if not something produced by an object, so mm. to speak? And then that leads, I think, to <laughs> faith in the orderer, God. Right? <laughs> yeah, I guess the Bible quote, this, this sort of thing makes me think of, um, is Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, which is obviously true from a Christian perspective in an intuitive sense. You just look at the sky, you see its glory. Um, and it just, yeah, it's just the awe of that seems to create in this, this sensation of this is created. But I guess the more you zoom in, the more you use telescopes, the more equations you introduce, the more this becomes apparent in a kind of technical sense and 
yeah, I guess our, it gets to this point where our intuitive senses of God just completely matches the scientific picture of the universe. Um, yeah. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. And one thing that worries me, though, I mean, I love that Bible verse, but mm -hmm. one thing that worries me is I think technology itself and the product of science can help obscure that grandeur of creation from us. And I mean, this is seen most starkly if you live in the city and there's a lot of light pollution and you can't see the stars. <laughs> That's a huge thing, though, because that in itself, it's, it talks about the stars, it talks about the <laughs> yeah, skies, yeah. right? It's, that in itself is such an insane level of complexity that <laughs> people are left, you know, how is such a vast creation in balance? But technology allows us to kind of retreat from the beauty of the world around us into our own kind of constructed worlds. Mm. And the metaverse <laughs> is perhaps the most worrying example of this, but, you know, I, I really... I think this is where science goes wrong, is it just seeks to understand without gaining the perspective in yeah. nature. It just seeks progress or progress' <laughs> yeah. sake kind of thing, right? Yeah. It's not it's not got an awareness of how can we even progress to begin with. Yeah. Or why progress to begin why with. Progress? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't question its underlying assumptions. It just carries on regardless. I think on that note we should uh, end with the joke. Um, sure. I don't know if I told you, we always end this with a joke. Yeah, hit me. So, um, the joke for this week is here. Um, when did God create Adam? When? Just a little before Eve. Interesting. So is this assuming that time is a constant? Or... It's not about the... It's not about the kind of technicalities of it, it's more a kind of joke. Oh. Oh. So, like, before, as in, before oh, Eve, in... Adam and Eve, but before Eve, as in the time of day. What? Here in... we go again! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know it does kind of bring in... up things about time, and time is the thing with um, kind of um, thermo thermodynamics. Yes. Um, there is that side of it, and we could go into that. So, and causation, yeah, and so, which comes first. So you would expect to go from an ordered universe to a disordered universe. But the fact that we're still here, we see such complexity, even though we've had 13 billion years, that doesn't make sense from a material... Is it didactic, guys? Is it didactic? <laughs> You're right, Jeff. Yeah. You're just telling the joke. Just trying to comprehend this, but... Yeah, so, but that, that's I, the, so Eve the evening. Yeah, it, oh, it does relate to time, I see. but it's comparing that relation of time, or is a kind of double meaning. I see. But nice. it's funnier when you get them at the same time. If you, if you'd got them at the same time, you might have laughed. Thank you guys again. See you next time. I, I, I don't get paid enough for this. Yeah. <laughs>